Thank you. It is great to be here. I'm going to top up my water a little bit here. Um, yeah, it was 2017. I was one of the speakers at Westminster Science and Faith Conference here. That's where I met Pastor Bob. And then we had a conversation over lunch, and that led to this. And um, yesterday, we had about two and a half hours from 9 to 11 for a group of us at the table out here. The, the first time I've given a talk at a Starbucks, no, not a Starbucks, but it sort of felt like that, was fun, talking about <clears throat> apologetics, about science, and what we're to make of science and the stories that come out of science as Christians, and then how it's impacting the church, particularly relevant today, because as you may know, there's a concerted effort among a segment of the evangelical community to get the church to become okay with the Darwinian explanation of life. So we'll be addressing that this morning. I had a phone conversation with Pastor Bob two or three weeks ago talking about what I was going to talk about this morning. And I told him I just wanted to preach from the Word. And he said, yeah, but you should give them some science. And I said, well, so he, uh, we, uh, we reached a compromise where I said I would talk a little bit about the science. I'll give just a few minutes of recap of what we talked about yesterday, uh, sort of a hint at what I talk about in the book. And then we'll launch, in, launch into a proper uh, sermon, and we're going to be looking at opening up the book of Jeremiah this morning. So if we want to bring up the slides here, this is one of the interesting things that I came across as I was working on the book, a quote by UC Berkeley uh, psychology professor Alison Gopnik, writing in the Wall Street Journal. She said, by elementary school age, children start to invoke an ultimate godlike designer to explain the complexity of the world around them, even children brought up as atheists. And she didn't see this as a good thing. She sees this as a bad thing that requires education to start very early so that people don't get too carried away with their early childhood intuitions. But the interesting thing here is this is an admission that's now widely recognized that it does not require parental instruction in order for four-year-olds, when they look at a butterfly, to see it as something that was made by a godlike designer. It's innate. It's in us to see things that way. And in fact, we have to work hard later in life if we want to remove that intuition and replace it with another story. Um, so that's an interesting thing. And I incorporated that in the book. And I was thinking as I was writing the book that I really wanted to, to tie into that intuition and show people that you don't have to be an expert to have great confidence in the fact that we are not cosmic accidents, that we were made by a personal creator God. Um, you can know that without putting on a white lab coat. You can do simple version of science that I call common science and have that be confirmed. And you can stand firm on that. So uh, here's, here's an example of, of how I think the four-year-olds do this, three-year-olds do this. What they're seeing, I think, when they look at something like a butterfly or something like a digital camera, is they see something that does something clever and since they're learners, they know that you have to learn to do clever things. They know that these things don't just happen by accident. You have to put things together in order to make something do something clever. And they want to know how to put things together. So when a four-year-old sees something like this, they know that there has to be something going on inside it that allows this, when you push a button, to take a picture. And if you were to take one of these apart, I don't recommend this, by the way. Voids the warranty. Uh, you would see that, in fact, there are loads of parts that form subcomponents that form, ultimately, this top-level invention, the, the 
digital camera. And none of this happens by accident. Every one of these pieces has the shape it has, is made of the materials it's made of, in order for it to perform its sub-function, in order for this digital camera to do what the digital camera is supposed to do. And if that's true of something like this, it's all the more true of things like this, right? Because when we look at people or other higher life forms, we see things that operate in a way that sand and wind and, and dirt and fire don't operate. They operate at a much higher level. So we know there has to be something clever going on in order for these things to work. You don't have to study biology to confirm that, but if you do, you will confirm it. In anatomy, you see all these marvelous organs that come together. Each of them has its own sub-function in order for us to perform our high-level function of being humans, the way God created us. And you can look further into any one of these organs and see the tissues that make up the organ. Here's the eye and the various tissues that make up the eye, and you can go further into that and look at the cells that make up any one of the tissues. Here are the rod and cone cells that make up the retina. And you go inside the cell and further and further, all the way down to the level of molecules, single molecules. And this is where I and my colleagues have done our work, asking whether can accidental, chaotic, purely natural processes even invent at this level of single protein chains that fold up and do chemistry or do some um, mechanical function within a cell? Can even that be ascribed to chance? And it turns out it can't, and we've published uh, work on this for many years, showing that even at this level, things are orchestrated and they can't happen by coincidence. Someone had to know what he was doing in order for these things to exist. So here's a very simple way to look at the, uh, I call it the argument from coincidence. It's a simple way for non-experts to confirm the intuition that you had since you were four years old. When you look at Living things like this, you know that they were made by a godlike designer, and here's how you can, you can show it, and maybe you can use this in, in, in dialogue with people who, who now question this. They've learned to question it. When we look at these things, beyond dispute, we are looking at things that we normally would attribute to genius, because no human genius can make anything like these things, right? They just function at such a high level. There's, there's no group of humans with any budget and any amount of time that can come up with something like these things. So, if these were not made by genius, but if they were instead made by chaotic, natural, blind processes that had no ability to conceive them, what we're really claiming is a coincidence, that the lower cause that has nothing at all to do with this higher cause somehow produced the products of the higher cause, and that is nothing more than a claim of coincidence, and an astonishing coincidence. And it turns out that probability is the math of coincidence, and if you, if you do the calculations, you can show that there is, no, there is not enough time or material in the universe for a coincidence on this magnitude uh, to happen. So we rightly reject these things as coincidence. The four-year-old, of course, doesn't need a calculator and doesn't need, need to do a probability calculation. It's obvious that these things can't happen by accident. It's obvious that someone did this intentionally, a godlike designer. And that's only confirmed when you look at it technically. So. Enough of the science. We'll move on to um, scripture. And what I want to talk about before we, we turn to the book of Jeremiah is um, the created the idea of the created order and an error we can make when we mess up the created order. So you've heard the term probably. It refers to, in just broad strokes, the fact that God 
is the uncreated creator, so he stands above absolutely everything. And everything else was created, and it forms sort of a rank of creation by God's decree. And you can think of this rank of creation as forming a pyramid. All the created things are down here in this pyramid, and God stands above the pyramid as the one who brought all of this into existence. And for his purposes, for his glory, who did he place at the top of the pyramid? He placed us at the top of the pyramid. Genesis 1, let us make man in our image and let, and let them have dominion over all the living things and over all the earth. So God, for his purposes, placed human beings at the top of the pyramid that we would have dominion over everything else in the pyramid. That's the created order, God above it as the creator of all things, the uncreated creator. And then part of him making us in his image is that he created us to be creators ourselves. So we have the same, um, this, the same desire and the same delight that God has in going and finding things and rearranging them and making them conform to ideas that we have in our head. We are the created creators. He is the uncreated creator above us. Well, you may have heard different versions of this. And the scientific materialist version, the atheistic version, is pretty much an inversion of this pyramid. The first thing an atheist does is says, well, God's not in the picture, so you remove God from above it. And then you invert the pyramid, so it looks like this, and the things that were at the very bottom, sort of the elements, are now the things at the top. Because the elements, the stars produced elements, and then planets were formed from the elements, and then when you have planets that have water on them, you know the story. Simple life forms automatically. Physics makes this. And then simple life evolves through natural selection and mutation. And you end up at the very end of this process with all of these things forming various things. And at the end of it, you end up with us at the bottom of the pyramid. It's a complete inversion of the scriptural picture, which puts us at the top of the pyramid. The scriptural pyramid is more like, sort of in crude terms, is more like a food chain where, yes, the elements were there, the stars made the elements, but what grabs carbon dioxide and water and photons and makes something out of it? Plants do. So plants sort of show mastery over the elements by how they're designed. Herbivores show mastery over the plants by eating them. Carnivores show mastery over the herbivores by eating the herbivores. And we show mastery over everything else because we've been, we've been given dominion over everything else. So yes, the lion and the great white shark and the hawk and the eagle may be at the top of the biological food chain in terms of animals, but we're even given dominion over them. We're the ones who take care of, we're stewards of nature, we take care of the places where the lions dwell, we decide if the wolf population is, is too large and we decide what to do about it. So we've been given this position above. You have these two pictures, the pyramid with us on the top and the pyramid with us on the bottom and with God removed. Now, you may have also heard that there are a number of Christians who are trying to sort of um, Christianize the inverted pyramid. They are trying to say, well, what if we put God back in the picture and say God is the one who orchestrated physics so that stars would make elements and so that the elements would make simple life and so that simple life would evolve and eventually become us. Can we do this? Can we take this inverted pyramid and put God over it and call that a Christian thing and be okay with it? We are being urged by very influential people and smart people and um, 
genuine believers to make this move. One of them um, is a friend of mine, William Lane Craig. He's a very bright Christian philosopher. And he gives us some insight into why we would even think of doing this in his Reasonable Faith podcast. This is a transcript from one of his uh, podcast pieces. He says, as Christians, you don't have to make a frontal assault on one of the pillars of contemporary science in the name of Christianity. That, in the minds of most people, will simply disqualify Christianity rather than evolutionary biology. If they hear that evolutionary biology is incompatible with theism, well, guess which belief is going to be given up? It's going to be theism, because the evolutionary paradigm is so entrenched that theism, if it's incompatible with it, will simply be disqualified as incredible. So this is sort of strategic reasoning, that if this idea, if this inverted pyramid is being taught in the textbooks and if the whole scientific establishment is behind it, and we declare it to be wrong, well, we're going to put ourselves in a position of forcing people to compare, do we want to go the way of the people who are going against the scientists, or do we want, do we want to go with the scientists? And if you do that kind of calculation, it can give you a reason to say, let's not quibble about this. Maybe this isn't so fundamental. Maybe we can let the pyramid be inverted, and maybe we can rearrange our doctrine around it. So does God really care about this, which way we go on this? I will argue that he does, and we're going to turn to Scripture, specifically to the book of Jeremiah, and I now seem to have lost my place, so I'll have to re-find it. Um, but before we do, I want, to, I want to just say, I'm going to, this passage, I believe, is going to be naming the sin that is being committed when we do this sort of aversion, inversion, and the sin is called idolatry. But when I say idolatry, you might be thinking of a golden calf, and you might be thinking, well, we don't do that anymore. We don't fashion things out of gold or metal or wood and put them on a shelf and bow down to them. Idolatry is a bigger category than that, actually. 19th century evangelical Anglican bishop R.C. Ryle wrote that idolatry, idolatry refers to any instance in which the honor due to God is turned aside from him and bestowed on that which is not God. And whenever this is done, whether in heathen temples or in professedly Christian churches, there is an act of idolatry. Whenever, if we're at the top of this pyramid, we look straight up to God. We are in direct communion with God. And whenever you invert it, you put something between us and God. You put something above us as though it had the power to order our lives when only God has that power. And when you do that, you're constructing an idol. And it's much easier to do this than you might think. It does not necessarily involve collecting gold and forming a gold calf. It can be done much more commonly than you might think. So I'm going to read, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, Jeremiah 10, <clears throat> verses 1 to 16. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. 
Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones in the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, <clears throat> the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth, and he makes lightning for the rain, and he pours forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So you have this beautiful account, sort of tragically beautiful account, of people who are demonstrating in their activity that they have dominion over the things they're working with because they're manipulating these things and crafting something, and then foolishly pretending that that crafted thing has power over them, putting it on a shelf, bowing down to it, and worshiping it. God has demonstrated in that he has created all things that he has dominion over absolutely everything, that, that he has authority and power over absolutely everything. There's no more clear way to demonstrate power over something than to create it, to craft it, to manipulate it. And so God has that authority over absolutely everything, and by his design, he's placed us in dominion over the rest of created, over the rest of creation, so that we can go and manipulate creation. We can have ideas to construct a house, cut down trees, make timber, make the house, make bricks out of clay. All of these are demonstrations in our actions that we have power over the things that he's given us power over, and in acting as creators, we demonstrate that. All of this comes under humanity. Nothing comes between humanity and God by God's created order. And whenever we make this mistake, we're putting something between us and God as though it had the power to order our lives. <clears throat> so I'm going to make three points here. The first is that idolatry inverts the created order. The second is that idolatry is a ridiculous sin of commission. And the third is that idolatry is an offensive sin of omission. So you know 
this distinction between sins of commission, and sometimes we focus only on those, but they're both sins, right? Sins of commission are the things that we do that we shouldn't have done, and sins of omission are the things that we didn't do that we should have done. They're equally sinful. Point number one is idolatry inverts the created order, and this is the main theme of the passage, that whenever we take something that rightfully comes below us, that we have been, have been given dominion over and put it above us as though it had power over us, we are inverting the created order, and that's the essence of idolatry. Notice that it does not require, in this passage, the craftsman is taking the wood and putting, shaping the wood and putting gold and silver over it and putting clothing over it, but it would be no less idolatrous if someone were just to cut a log and put the log up on the mantle and pretend that the log is his or her God, right? That would be no less idolatrous. Verse 8 in the passage, they are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. So to take material, which we have dominion over, and pretend that that has power to order our lives is idolatrous, whether or not you carved the material, whether or not you dressed it up. That's the point of the passage. So what makes this sin of idolatry so offensive to God? Point two is that idolatry is a ridiculous sin of commission. For the only creatures who are made in the image of God to worship and fear and bow down to anything but God is pure foolishness. And the foolishness is in a humorous way highlighted and underscored in this, in this passage. So if you think verses, of verses 3 to 5 here, and they are intended to be humorous in their um, lampooning of this sin of idolatry. Uh, verse 3, a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to, to do good. And it's Silly, of course, that you would be afraid of something that you had to carry, as though it had power over you, when you've just demonstrated that you have power over it, and it's powerless. There's another, perhaps even more humorous version of this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, which I'll read, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> Speaking of the, this craftsman, the one who's crafting the idol, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Are you kidding me? This is supposed to be humorous. How can you show that this wood is worth less to you than the hot dog you roasted over it? 
and then take the other half and fashion it into something and pretend that it has authority over you when you've just demonstrated the opposite, that you have authority over it. It seems ludicrous and laughable and ridiculous and foolish and all those things it is. And yet, do we not find ourselves making a similar mistake? Have you ever had this experience that I've had more times than I wish to count where there's something that has caused you anxiety? There's something that has caused you to worry, to lose sleep, and you're fretting and trying to sort things out. You're doing web searches. You're trying to, trying to eliminate the thing that's causing you concern and fret. And this goes on for hours or maybe days in the most embarrassing instances. And then it dawns on you, maybe I should pray about this. Have you ever had that? experience, I've had it more times than I care to count. And during those hours or those days or however long it goes, what you've done is you've put something above you as though it has power over you, as though it has the power to organize your life, to order your life, and it doesn't. And you know that. And when it dawns on you and you pray, you realize, no, the only one who's above me who has the power to order my life is God himself. And this thing that I've put there doesn't belong there because I put it between me and God as though it's above me and it's not. That's the common version of the sin of idolatry that we're all guilty of and all too often guilty of. The sin of commission, putting something up there. Third, idolatry is an offensive sin of omission because when we put something here, we're not putting God there, right? So the omission is the thing we didn't do, and that is the thing that for hours or days I wasn't doing when I had this anxiety, was I wasn't recognizing that God is in charge of all this, right? I put something else up there as though it were, and in doing that, I failed to put God in his proper place. God has honored us above every other created thing so that we might honor him above everything. Verses... 6 and 7 in our passage, Jeremiah 10. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And then skipping down to verse 12. It is you who made the earth by your power, who established the world by your wisdom. And by your understanding, stretched out the heavens. For us to honor any created thing by ascribing to it godlike power over us is to rob God of his deserved honor. Only he deserves that position. Verses 14 and 16 speak to this Every man is stupid and without knowledge. And women, I think you're included there too. This is a a general reference to me. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his, of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is a passage that's telling us when something else is up there, remove it. Only God deserves that position of authority over all creation. Fear, I think, 
is perhaps our best warning sign, our red flag, that we have allowed something to have that position that it shouldn't have. We are, my wife and I are in the process right now of getting our house ready to sell in the Seattle area in order for us to move down to Southern California. I've taken a, a teaching position at Biola University down in Southern California. And as we're in this sort of complex process of selling a house and trying to buy a house, I'm reminded of the same thing that we went through 15 years ago when we moved from the UK. We lived in Cambridge, England, to the Seattle area. And in the British system, there isn't anything like earnest money. And it may vary the system in different places in the United States. But in Britain, there was no earnest money concept. So you would go through this whole procedure of having accepted an offer and working through the, having the house inspected. And you get to the point of closing where, you know, you're holding the keys ready to hand them over. And the prospective buyer could, at that late point, say, sorry, I don't, I don't want to buy the house. Just kidding, I'll look for another house. And then you would be back to square one, putting up your for sale sign, showing people your house. And with us having an international move in the works, I, I could not, although my, in my head I knew that God was in charge of this whole thing, this woman who had made a bid on our house, I put her up here as though she had the power in her decision to order our lives. And I knew it was not right. I knew that, that, that she came under the, under the sovereignty of God and that God was in charge of all of this, including her decision. But it felt to me as though she had that power. And the anxiety that I was feeling was a result of me putting her there where she didn't belong. And I kept taking it to the Lord. And my prayer is that this time around, I'll, I'll do better. But it's a sin that we fall into so easily. And anxiety, fear, I think, are the most clear red flag that, that we're doing it that we've put someone up here who doesn't, belo doesn't belong up there. Fear is our warning sign. Think about what Scripture says about fear. For as many times as Scripture says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fear God, fear God alone, and it says that many times, it also says fear not. And I think what's going on there is there's a call for us to remove all the other things that we fear and recognize that God alone is the one to be feared. And when we get in that position, then God's message to us is, fear not. I am is in this position, and I love you, and I care for you. No other thing that you put up there is going to give you the fear not message. Nothing else has the power, if you fear it, to remove your fear. Only God has that power, and that is why he is to be feared. And when we do fear him in that way, when we re revere him in that way, his message to us is fear not. You don't need to fear because I'm in charge. Okay, I'm going to run through six points of application very quickly. I'm going to dwell a little more on one because it will touch on this theistic evolution thing that I think the church needs to grapple with in this context of idolatry. The first application point is just this. Fearfully listen to God alone. God alone has our future in his hands, and that's good news because he's a loving God. Point two is withhold judgment. It's easy for us to see idolatry or any other sin. I don't know if you're as good as I am at seeing sin in others. But usually, when you're seeing sin in others, you're guilty of the same sin, right? And clearly, that's true of idolatry, that we're all guilty of it. As brothers and sisters, help someone who might need to see something, but do it as someone who's a, a, a fellow sinner, someone who understands sin because we've got experience with it. 
Point three is guard against creedal idolatry. That is the official sanctioning of idolatry by the church. It's one thing if a person is sinning in idolatry and you don't always have to call out the sins of another. That's like calling out the person with a speck in their eye when you, have, when you have a log in your own eye. It's another thing when people are trying to move the church to a new position and that new position is idolatrous. Now we're having to protect the church and you're not pointing out the sin of an individual. Pray for individuals but you're trying to protect the doctrinal purity of the church. When people are trying to take a position that is not right and is idolatrous, they're trying to move the church into a position of endorsing a, a sinful position that puts something between us and God. And this inverted pyramid is just that. If we say that nature created us, we're saying God created nature, nature created us, we're down here. And God says, no, we're up here. God created both us and nature, and he put us above nature. We cannot make that mistake without serious doctrinal error, and we have to stand up in this case. It is not judging a brother or sister. It is protecting and guarding the church, which we must do. Deborah Harzma is, uh, I know her. She is the president of an organization called the BioLogos Foundation, which is a well-funded organization that is trying to get the evangelical church to be okay with Darwinism. She wrote in a book called Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and, and Intelligent Design this. Deborah Harzma speaking. We accept that natural selection and other evolutionary mechanisms acting over long periods of time eventually result in major changes in body structures. Over a very long time, all species on Earth arose through gradual change and are related by a tree of common ancestry. We, by the way, are included as humans among those all species. So this is textbook evolutionary doctrine that over long periods of time, these simple natural processes formed everything and eventually formed us. This is the inverted pyramid. She's a believer. I'm not questioning the belief of these people. I'm just saying I think this is a very, uh, it's a dangerous um, heretical view about the created order. It is an idolatrous position. Todd Wilson wrote earlier this year in Christianity Today, January 2019. I know Todd Wilson as well from my time in Cambridge. He was there. He said, <clears throat> excuse me, I suspect in 20 years' time, support for Adam and Eve as real persons in a real past will be a minority view even within evangelicalism. Should this come to pass, I remain confident that the Christian faith will survive, even though this will require some reconfiguration of our deepest convictions. That seems wrong-headed to me. <laughs> because in saying that, you're already said we're willing to give up our deepest convictions. And why are we giving up our deepest convi convictions? Because a bunch of scientists say that the, that the pyramid is inverted. Would it not be better if these are deep convictions and if they came from Scripture, to stand firm on them and to be willing to be called foolish by scientists or by academicians because we're standing for the truth. Jesus stood for things and was mocked and ridiculed. Are we not called? Is that not part of what um, carrying our own cross is, is to be willing to have that kind of mistreatment from the world? Point four, don't seek the world's approval. Here, it's just spoken so clearly, clearly in uh, verses 2 and 3 in chapter 10. 
Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs, <clears throat> excuse me, of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. This whole passage is speaking to Israel because so many times Israel fell into the folly of the pagan nations around them. And so this passage starts off by saying, don't do what they do. It's foolish what they're doing. And is that not what is happening here? That the, the segment of the church that's trying to get the church to be okay with Darwinism is envying the world and trying to look like the pagan nations around us and calling the church to do what they are doing. I think this is another case where, no, don't do what they are doing. That's foolish what they're doing. Todd Wilson, this friend of mine who wrote in Christianity Today in January, also says this in the same article. I personally, this is Todd Wilson, I personally don't find the genetic evidence compelling enough to jettison belief in a real Adam and Eve in a real past. I admit that the evidence is mounting and at this stage looks, to my untrained eye, impressive. But scriptural convictions keep me tethered to the historic Christian conviction about the original human pair. Again, how could you find something impressive that you don't understand? I mean, he, he says to his untrained eyes, so he's not claiming that he understands the arguments are being made, and yet he finds them impressive. I think you're in a dangerous position when you're saying that arguments you don't understand, you're impressed by, because you're clearly not impressed by the argument, you're impressed by the people who are making, or the authority that's making the argument. And it seems to me you've made an idol there. You said these people are so powerful and so important that we don't want to look foolish in their eyes, so we will do whatever we have to take, whatever we have to do to reconfigure our doctrine so that they don't call us names. And that's just wrong-headed. We are standing by the truth, even if they do call us names. And that's what we need to do. Think of this, and this is point five. Don't just guard our deepest doctrinal convictions, treasure them because they're good. So it is a good thing that God has placed us in direct communion with him, that we are at the top of the created order, we're not down here. It's a good thing that he created us directly, not indirectly through a multi-billion year process that eventually had us pop out or it could have had something else pop out. He directly fashioned us. We are the way we are because he made us to be the way we are. Think of an analogy. A husband, a negligent husband, who thinks that because he earns money in his job and the money goes into a bank account and pays for the things that his wife and his children need, that that is an adequate demonstration and a complete demonstration of his love for his wife and for his family. That is a demonstration. That's a good thing that he's earning money and putting it in an account and that it provides for his family. But it does not replace the direct face-to-face -face coming to his wife and saying, I love you. Coming to his kids and saying, I love you. Face-to-face -face is not replaced by this indirect version of love. And a husband who thought that way would be neglecting the truer thing. God does not neglect that. He's put us here we report to him. We pray to him directly. There is nothing in between us. There should be nothing in between us. The final application point, point six, is as with all sin, Jesus is the answer, okay? That shouldn't come as a surprise. There's a beautiful prayer that Jeremiah includes in this passage. 
in verse, verses 23 and 24. So after this sort of comical, tragic description of what idolatry looks like and how hurtful it is to the nation of Israel, he says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. It's a simple prayer where Jeremiah is asking God for two things, justice and mercy, right? Correct me, O Lord, be just, demonstrate your justice, but not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing bring me to nothing. As though Jeremiah understands that were God to pull out, were God to pour out his full wrath for the deserved punishment that we have as sinners, we would be destroyed. There would be nothing left. And Jeremiah, it had not been revealed to him fully how God would do this, but God answered the prayer, didn't he? And he answered the prayer in Jesus, that in Jesus, God's justice is fully satisfied. All the sins of humanity are placed on Jesus, were placed on Jesus, and the full punishment was poured out on Jesus, God the Father punishing God the Son for sins that we committed that he did not commit as a sinless, perfect God-man. And having punished his son, who willingly went to the cross for that purpose, he lovingly and graciously and mercifully is imputing to us the righteousness that is Christ that is not in us. We don't have it in us to be righteous, but we're given righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. That's how Jeremiah's prayer is answered, that God proves himself to be just, and he does it without bringing us to nothing. Praise the Lord for that.